So, <laughs> for those of you not into cheesy 1980s sci-fi movies, that might include a few of you, let me explain to you what you just saw. That clip comes from the movie Dune, uh, based on the award-winning novel by Frank Herbert. It's about a dusty uh, planet where a messiah-like figure named Paul Atreides discovers his messianic powers and rescues a group of desert dwellers from their evil overlords. And after he delivers his people, he brings the reins and he gives life to this dreary, dusty planet. No longer will his people dwell in dry caves or drink their own sweat. They can drink from streams bubbling up from the ground. They can eat crops that have been watered by uh, the heavens. Now, honestly, the book is a classic, but as you can imagine, the movie was a little bit of a flop. <laughs> uh, disappointing Dune fans everywhere. So I am actually looking forward to Hollywood's second attempt due out this fall. Anybody with me? <laughs> Now, why am I showing you a scene from a weird sci-fi movie? Because it actually reminds me of something that we read about in the Bible. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, God's people were stuck in a desert. They were thirsty and depressed. They needed water. They needed a Messiah. And in the book of Isaiah, God promises them. And he promises to unleash rains from the heavens to water their lands. He promises to release them from their captors and their prisons. But these people are not living on dune. And the rain is not actually rain. Uh, it represents something else. But what does it represent? And our question, what does this mean for us? Well, this is what I want to talk about with you this morning. We are in an extended study of the book of Isaiah called Isaiah for Today. Uh, if you're just joining us, you might not know this, but Isaiah was a prophet, Jewish prophet, who lived in the Jewish nation of Judah uh, eight centuries before Jesus. God had built his family of Judah, the nation of Judah, to be a light to the nations and show the world his, his glory and his goodness. In exchange, they would be able to live in a, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Unfortunately, the people of Judah did not do that. They lived lives of immorality and idolatry. Finally, God sends a prophet their way, letting them know uh, that they are going to be destroyed by their enemies. The prophet's name was Isaiah. And as we've studied Isaiah, we see how this plays out, the nation of Babylon, uh, rolls into uh, Judah and destroys their capital city of Jerusalem and exiles or takes the people captive back to Babylon. Even after this, though, God hasn't given up on his people and he brings them back to their homeland. He explains to them that he still wants to have a relationship with them. He tells them that despite everything, he still has plans for them, plans they can't even fathom. And that's what we're going to be studying in this, our second to last mini-series on Isaiah. The series is called Promises, Promises. And it's all about some of the long-term promises that God makes to his people in the book of Isaiah. One of those promises is to bring the rains to a dry and dreary land in the form of his Holy Spirit. So with that introduction, let me go ahead and read to you our passage for the morning. It comes from Isaiah chapters 43 and 44. And I'm going to break it up into two segments. This is the middle section. I'm not going to read to you. I'll start in 43, verse 14. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians 
and the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord your God, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. I'm going to skip down to chapter 44, verse 1. Now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, it's another name for Israel. Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. This is a beautiful passage in Isaiah. In it, God is speaking to his people who are stuck in captivity in Babylon. He promises to defeat the Babylonians and bring them back through the wilderness to their homeland in Jerusalem. As he led their ancestors out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land, so he can lead the captives home. He can make a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland, he writes. Now this image of streams in the wasteland is actually a recurring motif in the passage. The prophet actually picks it up later as he writes in verse 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land. And streams on the dry ground, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. God promises to turn their dry fields into lush farms and their cracked creek beds into flowing streams. And he promises to do it by his spirit. Now what does this mean? What does it mean that God promises to pour out his spirit? You might not actually know this, but this image of God pouring out his spirit is a very common image in the Old Testament. The prophet Ezekiel, for example, he says, I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. The prophet Joel, another prophet in the Old Testament, he gets into the game. He says, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. This is a very common motif in the Old Testament. God promises to pour out his spirit on his people and their land like rain from the heavens. But what does that mean? Well, I want to answer that question, or at least I want to try to answer that question for you this morning. But first, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt powerless in life? Have you ever felt powerless to do what you wanted to do? Powerless to obey God? Powerless to love your spouse? 
powerless to break your addiction. Here's another question. Have you ever felt lonely? Have you ever felt like nobody gets you? Like nobody really, really understands? Have you ever felt like, you know, there might be a chance that God exists, but he seems strangely uninterested in my life? Have you ever felt lonely? There's another question. Have you ever felt empty? Empty, like there's just something missing. Or have you ever felt dry? Like there's just no life in you. Nothing can grow. Like you've got a a perpetual case of dry mouth all over. I wake up every morning with dry mouth. I uh, have trouble sleeping, so I got to take some sleeping medications. And and one of the side effects is dry mouth. So I wake up at three in the morning, like which defeats the purpose of the medication, with this like dry mouth, and I'm just chugging water at three in the morning. Have you ever felt like that? But like everywhere, just parched. Nothing's growing in your life. Nothing can take root. Me too, feeling powerless, alone, empty, and dry is basically a description of what it means to be a human being. Uh, one of the many, many, many sequels of Dune is called Children of Dune. We are all children of Dune. Living on a desert planet, feeling alone and abandoned, oppressed by the heat. And this is why God promises what he does. He promises to bring his people back from Babylon. But he promises to rain down his spirit on them so that they will never feel powerless, alone, or dry again. You see, in this sense, rain and water are metaphors for something else. They're metaphors for the spirit. The spirit of God is what we really need. The Spirit of God is what we really thirst for. The Spirit of God is what we really want. But, what is the Spirit? That's an important question. What is the Spirit? It's also complicated, but the gist of it is this. The Spirit of God is the invisible presence of God in our world and in our lives. That's what the Holy Spirit is, the invisible presence of God in our world and in our lives. You see, as Christians, we believe that the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, is actually a trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one essence. God the Father is transcendent. He is beyond. He is separate. He is other. God the Son came into the world to die for our sins and rose again from the dead. And then he ascended to heaven, sits at God's right hand, ruling over all creation. But God the Spirit is here. God the Spirit is with us. God the Spirit is inside of us, living inside of our churches, just as God uh, indwelt the temple in the Old Testament. So God as Spirit indwells us. Now the Spirit can be hard to conceive. The Spirit is invisible, hard to picture, hard to understand. So the authors of Scripture use different images to describe to us what the Spirit is like. The Spirit is like a dove. The spirit is like fire. The spirit is like wind. And the spirit is like a rainstorm. Pouring down into our lives, giving us life. Because this is what rainstorms do. They give life. The spirit gives life, just like rain to desert land. And this is God's promise to his people, to pour the spirit in their lives, to give them life so that they can grow Although to be specific, that's not exactly what he promises the people of Judah and Isaiah. He promises the spirit to whom? He promises the spirit to their children. 
to their descendants. Remember what Isaiah writes here. He says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. I'll pour out my spirit on your descendants. Now wait, what? If I were a member of the nation of Judah stuck in Babylon, I'd be a little bummed by this. But, but wait, God, uh, you're not going to pour the spirit into our lives? We're the ones stuck in Babylon. We're the ones living on a desert planet, right? That'd be a bummer. It's like God promising to give my children everything that I've always wanted. Why would he do that? Matt, I'm going to bless your children. I'm going give to give them everything you've always wanted. I'm going to be with them. I'm going to give them power and joy and goodness. I'm going to give them that big F-150 truck you've always wanted. They're going to get that. Like, good for them. <laughs> but maybe some of that blessing for me. Well, God does promise that. God promises to pour his spirit into all people eventually. But first things first. You see, God has a plan. And for his own reasons, he has a plan to pour out his spirit on their children before he pours it out on them. And for the record, this is exactly what we see happen in the New Testament. Maybe you know the story. The New Testament is that portion of the Bible written before or after the life of Jesus. After the life of Jesus. It's a quiz question. And something important happens in the New Testament on the day of Pentecost. You ever heard of the day of Pentecost? Oh, yeah. You know, from our Pentecost guy over here, he knows about Pentecost. This guy knows about Pentecost. Favorite day of the year. That's right. So Pentecost was a Jewish holiday. It happened 50 days after Passover. And you see, following the ascension of Jesus, Jesus' followers were gathered together on the day of Pentecost. Now picture yourself in Jesus' followers' shoes. Uh, their, their leader had just died and resurrected and spent some time with them, and then he disappears. Goes off into heaven to rule over all creation. You're excited for him, but then you're just there. What do we do now? Where do we go? How do we do this? You're alone. You're scared. You're empty. You're afraid. But something happened to this group on Pentecost. Here's what happened. According to the book of Acts, here's what happened. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Picture this. In the same way God's presence had filled the temple in the Old Testament, God's presence had filled their church. God had poured himself into them, giving them joy and peace and hope and power and companionship. Their thirst had been sated. Their loneliness had been met. Their void had been filled. The children of Judah had been blessed. Now, Jesus' lead disciple, lead disciple Peter Peter is actually there to kind of be part of this, and he knows exactly what's going on. He knows that this is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Onlookers, onlookers who, who see this event, they're actually really confused by it. They think that everybody involved in this is crazy. Actually, they don't think that everyone's crazy. What do they think everybody is? They think everybody's drunk. They really, they, this group must be drunk. This might be a drunk church. And Peter says, they're not drunk. They're not drunk. You know what Peter says? They're not drunk. It's too early in the day for that. That's what he says. We Christians, we do our drinking later. <laughs> That's what he says. 
And then he quotes the prophet Joel. He says, this has been foretold. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my spirits, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And what Peter is saying is, those days are here. This, what's happening, is that as has been prophesied. What Isaiah wrote about, what Ezekiel wrote about, what Joel wrote about, it's happening now. And with the presence of God overflowing in their lives, these first followers of Jesus did what they needed to do. They went into the world to preach the gospel to people who hadn't heard it. They faced death by the courage of the Holy Spirit. They built churches by the power of the Holy Spirit. They performed miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. They brought life to communities by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what Isaiah foretold streams in the wasteland by the power of the Holy Spirit to your descendants. Now, if you're like me, And you've heard and read about Pentecost. You've always regarded the events of Pentecost with a mixture of bewilderment and jealousy. I mean, first, I am bewildered to think of this scene. They're having an ordinary church service. Just picture it. I mean, here we are having an ordinary church service, ordinary Pentecost service. And all of a sudden, a tornado rips through the building. Fire descends from the rafters. Everybody starts speaking in foreign languages. That had to be a memorable church experience. If this is what is meant to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, as some people say, you may be forgiven for being a little bit reluctant. Maybe not the fire today, God. At the same time, I am jealous. I have never had a Holy Spirit moment like this. Now, to be sure, I am very confident that the Spirit of God lives inside of me. I feel his presence. I sense his power. I follow his guidance. But I will confess that compared to Acts 2, Compared to Pentecost, my experience of the Holy Spirit may be a bit lacking. And it's not for trying or for lack of trying. I mean, I pray passionately that God fill me up with his presence. I uh, uh, ask God to pour himself into me. I pray openly. I try to live a moral life so that God might want to live inside of me. But sometimes I just feel empty, alone, dry. Sometimes the spirit feels more like a trickle, a, a drop from a faucet. It's like the, there's like one drop there, and I'm like, okay, God. More. If God promises to pour out his spirit into the lives of people, I feel like I'm getting like the last few drops from like a towel that's got just a little bit more. God, keep twisting, keep twisting, keep twisting. Whatever you got. Maybe you know what I mean. Maybe you don't. Maybe after hearing that about me, you think I'm some spiritless Christian who should not be pastoring a church. I'll leave it up to you. Uh, We practiced honesty here at Rooftop. I'm being honest. But I don't think I'm alone. I talk to people all the time who want more of God, who need more of God, who are desperate for God, and they don't know what to do. And again, to be sure, God does show up sometimes. Don't get me wrong, but not always like a tornado. Not always like fire from heaven. So what gives? What do we make of this? God promised to pour out his spirit in the lives of Judah's descendants. That's us. And here we are. What gives? Well, what we need to understand is that we live in in-between times. We live between the desert of sin 
and the garden of heaven. In the past, we lived in a dry desert with no hope. We had no hope for life. God seemed gone. In the future, when Christ returns, we will all live in a well-watered garden. God will be with us at every moment, guiding our steps, refreshing our souls. We will all call ourselves Israel. We will all call ourselves Jeshurun. We will all write our hands, I am the Lord's. For now, though, this is us. We live in between. Here in the in-between time, God sometimes shows up and sometimes he shows up big. We all know churches that have powerful revivals of healings and prophecy. We all have friends who have been enraptured by the Spirit. Some of us are those people. But, let's be honest, the world is not yet drenched in the Spirit. For some of us, the reality of God is only a trickle. It's like we're living underneath a, a patchy weather front passing through. There are rain clouds on the horizon. We will all get drenched. The storm is coming. It's going to happen. But for now, we just get scattered showers. We can see it raining over here, north of St. Louis, raining down here in Farmington. The front's pushing up this way. But it's dry up here in Columbia, North Columbia. Bright skies down here in Springfield. Some thunderclouds right here. Should be cool 65 up here in Effingham. I've always wanted to do that. (laughs) That's what it's like living before the downpour. Scattered showers. So as in-between people, though, what do we do? Do we just wait till the storm breaks? Just wait till the storm gets there? We just endure in our loneliness and dryness? Well, no. You see, even in this time of scattered showers, we can still live in the reality of God's spirit. God gives us things to do to live in that reality more fully. So, with a few minutes I have left, let's talk a little bit about that, about how to make rain, how to cultivate the presence of God in your life. You see, here's the cool thing about the Holy Spirit and the lives of God's people. If you're a Christian, you already have the presence of God inside of you. Like, you really do. You might not feel it all the time, but you really do. The Bible assures us that if we're followers of Jesus Christ, we have God living inside of us. In that same speech in the book of Acts, Paul tells everybody, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And guess what? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all whom are far off, for all the Lord our God will call. If you've confessed your sin and given your life to Jesus Christ and been baptized for forgiveness of your sin, the Spirit of God is living inside of you. That promise is for everybody. You and I just might need to live more in the presence of that reality. We might need to accept the fact that God is all around us. I mean, God really is all around us all the time. God is raining down all around us, everywhere, inside of us, around us. But we don't always like that. We don't like getting wet Getting wet is sloppy and messy. So what do we do? With God raining down around us, what do we do? We stay underneath our umbrella. Because we like to stay dry. We don't want God like messing up our new clothes. We like to stay under our umbrella. God is everywhere. All around us. Pouring down into into our world, into our lives. We like to stay dry. So how do we live in the presence of the Holy Spirit? 
What do you do if you want to get wet? What do you do? You take down the umbrella. Got to risk it. Risk getting wet. How do you take the umbrella down, though? You unfold it. Right, that's what you do. Yeah, you're still going with it. (laughs) Three ways. Three ways to take down your umbrella. First, receive the Spirit. Receive the Spirit. Before Jesus leaves the earth, he gathers his disciples and gives them instructions on what to do. He sends them out on the world to forgive sins and perform healings. Preach the gospel. Here's what he says. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus is so weird. Right? Hey, guys, come here, come here, come here, come here. I got something to tell you. And they're like, what? This COVID. (laughs) Mask, please. Six feet outdoors. Have you been vaxxed, Jesus? Jesus was so weird. Why does he breathe on his disciples? Well, the Greek word for spirit is the word pneuma. It's written panoima, but it's, it's pronounced pneuma. And pneuma can be translated in lots of different ways. It can be translated spirit, it can be translated wind, and also can be translated breath. Jesus was teaching them, the spirit is kind of like my breath. Can't see it, you can feel it, might be able to smell it. But you also got to know, it comes from me. And you dare not go into the world to do my work without my strength in your lungs. My breath in your lungs. That's the only way that you're going to be able to do what I've given you to do is by doing it with my breath, my spirit. Receive the spirit. Have you done that yet? Have you received the spirit? Maybe you haven't. I said that you know, every Christian, by definition, has the Holy Spirit, but maybe not every Christian is open to it. Maybe you're like honestly weirded out by Holy Spirit people like Skylar who do weird things like raise their hands in church. <laughs> I was that, like that for a long time growing up. I didn't want to be a Holy Spirit weirdo. But I decided I just need God to do what he wants to do inside of me, no matter how weird it gets. I was cutting myself off from the strength and the power of Jesus. Now I am constantly praying that I remain open to the spirit, no matter how weird it gets. When I'm actually out in nature and I see the wind blowing, I actually take it as an opportunity to pray a quick prayer. God, Fill me with the spirit as the wind blows so I have the strength to obey and serve you. My life is too hard to do it on my own strength. I'll run out of strength by like 7.45 in the morning. Receive the spirit. Second, walk by the spirit. As Paul writes to the Galatians, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. God wants to give us power to do what he gives us to do. God wants us to live holy lives, but sin lurks, tempting us away, and the only way to resist sin is to walk by the Spirit. Now, to walk by the Spirit is to depend on God's strength uh, to avoid sin, 
To walk by the Spirit is to depend on God as our motivation, our gasoline. Just like cars go by gasoline and by and the way bikes go by pedaling, so we must walk by the Spirit, by the Spirit's power. The Spirit is our strength. It's only walking by the Spirit that we can resist temptation and obey God at those hard moments. To walk by the Spirit means we've got to get filled up by the Spirit. Now, how do you get filled up by the Spirit? You get filled up by the Spirit in all the ways. Through praise, prayer, solitude, meditation, teaching, community, confession. That's how we can serve well, God, serve God well and long when we depend on the Spirit who fills us up. Uh, when I think of someone uh, who stays filled up by the Spirit, for example, I think of Jason Herbig. I'm going to talk about him because he's not here. <clears throat> Uh, Jason's our pastor of worship. Anybody who knows Jason knows how hard this guy works, what a great job he does. And maybe if you're like me, you wonder, how does Jason just keep going? <laughs> how does Jason just keep going and going? And how's he, where does he come up with all these fantastic ideas? He worships God for a living. I mean, he loves playing music because it fills him with strength and passion. That's what keeps him going. His job keeps him going. And when we had four services for Easter two weeks ago, I was afraid to ask Jason and the band to commit to it because that's a long morning. But they loved doing it because they are filled up by that. They could just play music all day. That's how they keep going, not by Red Bulls, not by caffeine, but by the spirit. Jason tells me that actually on his guitar, his strap, he bought a guitar strap a long time ago, and his strap has pictures of doves all over the strap. It was very intentional. He said he bought it. So that he was constantly reminded during worship that he leads us into the presence of God by the power of, uh, of God alone, by the spirit of God alone. My guitar strap, and has pictures of Harry Potter characters all over it. <laughs> I play by the power of dark magic. <laughs> As the prophet Zechariah says, not by might, not by power, not by potter, But by my spirit, says the Lord, walk in the spirit. Lastly, receive the spirit, walk by the spirit. And lastly, do not quench the spirit. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. To quench the spirit is to put it out. It's to extinguish it. To quench the spirit is to put a fire extinguisher on what God is doing. You see, God, here's the thing about God. He wants to do stuff. He's a busybody. He wants to bring change to our lives and to our world. And we need to realize this and, and cooperate and let him do what he wants to do. But we're not always comfortable with that. Sometimes we actually suspect that God might want to do something important in our lives and we're not quite ready for that. So what do we do? We get out our fire extinguisher, put out the fire. How do we quench the spirit? Well, we avoid big decisions that we know God wants us to make. We all have big decisions that we know God wants us to make. We know what those big decisions are. We just don't like making them. Sometimes we think about them in church. And at the end of church, we think, oh my gosh, I got a lot to do. I should go talk to the pastor about that. I should share my prayer request. I should take another step here. I should get baptized. I got to confess my sin. I got a lot to think about. I got a lot to do. These are big decisions. But you know what? I also have to go to the grocery store today. Okay, I'm going to do that. Psst. Quenching the spirit. 
Or, how else do we quench the Spirit? We ignore wise people in our lives who tell us things about us that we don't want to hear. There's a lot of people who know us very well, and they know us better than we know ourselves, and every now and then they have the courage to tell us that, tell us hard things that we don't want to hear. And we think, oh, no, that's totally not true. That's not true about me. I never want to talk to you ever again. Or we go see a counselor, and we pay the counselor to tell us important things about ourselves, and then we sit there, and the counselor says something disagreeable, like, oh, my gosh, I'm not going back to that person ever again. I didn't, I didn't come here to hear honesty. <laughs> that's quenching the spirit. God wants to do stuff. God wants to pour himself into us. God wants to change us. God wants to grow us. And we get out our fire extinguisher. We say we want God in our lives. We say we want change. But a lot of us don't really. We'd rather stay dry. We'd rather stay undoing. We'd rather stay underneath our umbrella. Being wet is messy. Being wet is sloppy. There's no life under an umbrella, though. It's really not fun. There's no life undoing. There's only loneliness. There's only drought. There's only emptiness. God has something more for you, though. God has something more for you. Here on earth, certainly in heaven, it's his spirit, his very self. He wants to pour himself into you, but you must receive it. You must walk in it. You must not quench it. You've got to take down your umbrella if you have any chance at experiencing what God has in store for you. That's the only way to lasting change. That's the only way to lasting joy. That's the only way to eternal life.